You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. In the beginning part of Ephesians, and we'll, we keep saying this just so we get the framework right, the beginning part of Ephesians, it, Paul's really giving us a sense of identity, who we are in Christ, telling us about the mystery that's being revealed. And in the latter half of Ephesians, Paul wants to help us understand what does that mean then to live in light of that? How do we live out this faith as followers of Jesus in light of our identity? And here at the end, we're spending about four weeks talking about some of our most important and basic relationships, marriage, parenting, and work. And a couple of weeks ago, I explained that verse 21 of chapter 5 becomes a bit of a controlling paradigm for the way we understand these relationships. And we said that as the spirit-filled people of God's kingdom, we are called to live with humility in our most basic relationships. And last week, we talked about the parent-child relationship, and today we're going to talk about marriage. Now, not everyone in this room is married. Not everyone will be called to be married. Not everyone uh, will experience that or is called to experience it. Singleness is a good thing within uh, God's kingdom, and it's a call for some of us. But for all of us, whether single, married, used to be married, wherever our reality is in life, marriage is an important picture of God's relationship to his people. And so this is applicable for all of us, regardless of our particular situation in life. Marriage is one of these primary calls and primary pictures God gives us. And so my aim for us today is actually to help you see God's vision for marriage in the Bible. And as a result, that we would all love Jesus more fully as we love one another more fully. And so if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 5, turn to, or sorry, go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word, and you can follow along. We'll begin in verse 21. When I finish reading, uh, one of the things I often say here is, I'll just say, this is the Word of the Lord. It's a reminder for us that this is God's Word that we're reading. And a response and gratitude to God's Word, you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. And so you can follow along, and I'll read beginning in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Go and grab a seat, and let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your help right now 
as we open your word and as we reflect on this vision you've given us for marriage, would we see your purpose for it? God, would you help to remove all the barriers we have to see this vision for what it is? Would you help to strip away any of the cultural ways that we think about this that are not consistent with you and your vision? And would you help us to see what you have for us in your word? God, we ask for your help. By the power of spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, there are two ways that you can pursue love and marriage in life, and one of them is primarily about me, about my needs, about my self-fulfillment, and the other, because of God's love for me, is actually about my spouse's needs more than it is my own. The first one is a selfish way of thinking about relationships. The second one is a scary way of thinking about relationships. And it's scary because people will say, if I'm not looking out for myself, no one will be. I'll lose myself. Maybe my spouse will take advantage of me. And when neither spouse can trust that their spouse is looking out for them, then they will feel the need to look out for themselves. And in the end, that's actually not a solution to the problem. It is the surest way, the surest path to a lousy marriage. Dan Adam Shapiro conducted a series of interviews in which he interviewed several different couples who had experienced divorce, and he collected them into a book titled, You Can Be Right or You Can Be Married. And what he found through his interviews with all these different couples is that self-centeredness was often one of the central causes of marital decline. And each spouse would see the self-centeredness in their, in their other spouse, and their own self-centeredness would start to grow, but they wouldn't see their own. They would grow more resentful, more angry, more frustrated at their spouse, meanwhile, not seeing how they were contributing to the breakdown of the relationship. And here's the problem with looking out for ourselves in marriage. It just doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually protect us from the pain that we are afraid of. God designed marriage to be a reflection of his relationship and his love to his people. And this is inherently self-sacrificing and other-oriented. And here's what God wants you to hear about marriage today. It is not primarily about you, but about God's glory and the good of our spouse. And when two people enter a marriage with that goal, with that in mind, then that is a place where both spouses can flourish. You will not flourish in a marriage by focusing on your own needs. But when both spouses take the needs of the other seriously, it is the only way that we can actually have our needs met. Now, I'm going to focus primarily on verses 29 through 33 as I work through the passage because all the key themes in the passage are present there in those last several verses. And we'll see there God's vision for marriage has at least three purposes that will form our outline. The first is that marriage is about oneness. Second, marriage is about mutual self-denial. Third, marriage is about pointing to something better. Now, let me say one more thing before we jump into the text. Uh, If the Bible is God's word to us, and it is, we believe that, we operate with that truth, then it will confront us at certain times. We should expect that it will. If it never confronts us in any way, then it just cannot be God's word. It wouldn't work that way. And my job as a preacher is to do my best job to tell you what the Bible says in a way that you can hear it. 
It's not my job to change it to make it more palatable, but to communicate it in a way that is discernible. So that we're able to comprehend what God says, not be confused by what God says. And then your work, your job is as God's spirit helps you to listen, is to work out with the Lord how you'll respond to what he has said. And this is true for every passage that we preach, but in particular today I say it because one of the areas where our contemporary modern minds are maybe most out of sync with God's word is in the area of marriage and sexuality. And so I say that now to just help you maybe suspend your own resistance to what God is saying, and let's all try and do our best to receive what God says. I'll do my best to help you hear what it is that he has said. So first, marriage is about oneness. The vision that God gives us for marriage is about unity together. It's about oneness. And if we look with me at verses 29 through 31, we get a description of this oneness. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This is a repeated message throughout this passage that in marriage, we become one. And in our oneness, we parallel the unity between Christ and his church. Verse verse 23 also describes Jesus as the head of the church and the church as his body. And he parallels that to our relationship. But sometimes because of questions about headship and our propensity to talk about that in particular, we miss the vision that God has for our union with Christ. Jesus has not only saved us from our sin, but he has chosen to identify with us in our new humanity. And association and identification with others is a powerful experience. When someone chooses to identify with us, to become one with us, it's a powerful experience. When someone who you respect identifies with you, You're encouraged. You like that feeling. In a very simple way, you might even think about your high school years. For some of you, you're not that far removed from it. And if if maybe somebody that you respect but don't know as well just even waves at you in the hallway, right? there's a sense of encouragement. You like that. Now, adults, we might think we moved on from that, but it's not high school hallways anymore. It's social media. And if you get followed by someone that you like and, and respect, then you feel the encouragement. In your workplace, if your CEO or your boss acknowledges you in a meeting, knows you, asks about your family, you might have a sense of encouragement and association. The fact that people choose to identify with us brings encouragement to us. And now, it's powerful for us, even in those simple ways, but the identification Jesus has chosen to take on with us is far more powerful, far more significant to our lives than the examples I just gave you. And the unity of our marriage is meant to be a picture of our union with Christ, Our marriage is about oneness. In ancient cultures, your family of origin played a significant role in your life, far more than it does today for many of our family situations. And even after being married, your spouse was often still seen as less important than even your parents. Your parents still took priority often. And the well-being of your spouse would sometimes be sacrificed for the good of your family of origin. Marriage was at times used as a means to improve your family's position in life and within the community. At times, it was very utilitarian. And in this way, marriage was about me and my needs, or at least my family's needs. And Paul confronts this idea with the words of Genesis 2 when he says that a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This is the mystery that Paul is talking about in verse 32, that God takes two individuals and makes them one. In the same way that God takes rebellious humanity and makes us one with a perfect Savior. Now, there are still families in America where it is hard to prioritize your spouse over your parents, but we are called to be one flesh, and our marriage is not just about us any more than it is about our family of origin. It is about God's glory and the good of our spouse. And one of the ways that Paul then applies that is in verse 29 when he says, no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. When your body is hungry, you feed it. When your body is tired, you sleep. It is highly intuitive for us to take care of ourselves. And if we see our spouse as part of us, united to us, then it will become natural to care for them. And here is the paradox of marriage. When I see that my own self-denial for my spouse is actually the pathway to joy and fulfillment, then it is not a contradiction for me to deny myself. Self-denial is actually the only path to self-fulfillment in marriage. The modern enemy of oneness in marriage is often less about our family of origin and more about a belief around fulfillment that comes from being a fully autonomous individual. And so often, if you want to be worthy of respect today, you need to depend on no one. And one of the worst things you can do is to deny your wants and your needs needs in the favor of someone else's. This way of thinking is captured well in a recent hit song called Flowers by Miley Cyrus. It is the most successful streaming song ever. It set the record for the most streams in one week on Spotify, and then the next week it broke its own record. And its popularity is due at least in part to the catchy tune that it has, but also what it communicates about romantic relationships. And in the song, Cyrus has just broken up with her man, and she's singing about how great they were together and how she cried when it ended until she remembered, and if you know the song, then the chorus is just coming to your minds right now, until she remembered that I can buy myself flowers and write my name in the sand. And she goes on to say, I can take myself dancing and I can hold my own hand. Yeah, I can love me better than you can. And I remember hearing the song for the first time and finding it ironic that she is singing about how she doesn't need a man to make her happy, but then she defines her happiness in being able to do the things that she wants a man to do, just better herself. Even while she sings of her self-autonomy, the song screams of her desperation to be fulfilled claiming that she can do it better. Intuitively, though, we know that that isn't actually true. And singing about it betrays the reality that ultimately what she wants is a man who can do it better than she can. And the vision of marriage that God gives us is not that we will be self-autonomous any more than it is that we would prioritize our family of origin. The vision that God gives us is oneness, a willingness to say, I'm with you, and you're with me. And through all the ups and downs, we will remain true to this covenant. And rather than asking whether you can buy me flowers, or take me dancing, or write my name in the sand, we should be more interested in asking ourselves what our one flesh mate might need. Maybe I can buy them flowers. Megan's thinking, yeah, let's get some flowers before we get home. <laughs> Maybe we can take them dancing, or we can send them a text about how much we appreciate them. 
expressing our oneness by denying our need for self-autonomy and self-fulfillment and seeking the good of our spouse through self-denial will actually lead to the most fulfilling marriages that we can have. And this brings us to our second purpose for marriage, that marriage is about mutual self-denial. Paul ends the Bible's longest teaching here on marriage with this summary statement in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And I want you to see two things here from this final exhortation from Paul. The first is that both husbands and wives are called to seek the good of the other through mutual self-denial. And the second is that husbands and wives are given different ways of doing that. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on verse 21, which says that we are meant to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I called us to live lives of humility before one another, not in a way that denies certain authority structures in the world. Remember, God has given them to us for our good, but in a way that honors the dignity and the value of everyone around us. And that means both husbands and wives must consider the needs of one another and then respond to those needs with a servant heart through self-denial. And let me just be the first to admit to you today that I struggle with this too. I have a hard time with this. Last week, I was preparing this sermon, and as I was preparing, I mentioned, all right, we went to the lake, and so we were on a short week, and so I was in my study on Tuesday morning trying to focus, trying to make sure my sermon wasn't rubbish for you all, and I was down there preparing, and Megan needed something, so she called me and asked me to help with something, and And then she called and asked for help with something else, and then I started to get kind of frustrated, and I kind of responded to her in a not very kind way. And almost immediately afterward, I felt this conviction. Here I was, preparing a sermon in which I was going to call you all to self-denial, and I was not doing that. I had no interest in God's vision for marriage in that moment. I was only concerned about what I needed. Now, of course, sometimes you, right, you set some boundaries. I needed to prepare a sermon, right? There's those things. But no, no way at any time is it okay, is that an excuse for me to respond to somebody, to Megan, in a way that would steal her dignity as a person. And we might justify it to ourselves and say, well, look at this, I'm sacrificing, I'm focusing so that we can go do this as a family. And maybe you've been in this situation and we want to excuse ourselves by making these kind of rationales for why we responded this way. But it is never an excuse, ever, to steal the dignity of our spouse through the way we communicate with them. We are meant to respond in self-denial and love. Now, the call to mutual self-denial, one of the things I want you to notice is, well, we're both all called to mutual self-denial, but one of the things that happens is Paul gives different commands to husbands and wives in how that expresses itself. At this point, all sorts of debates often rage about headship and submission, gender norms and expectations, complementarianism and egalitarianism, and we are not going to solve all those debates and questions today. Okay, they're weighty questions. They need to be thought about carefully. And one of the jobs of every Christian in America is to disenculturate our faith from American Christianity and the way that we seek to live in the way of Jesus, to follow the vision that God has given us in the Bible. And God has clearly done this in different ways for husbands and wives in how we function in marriage, and there are some ways that we complement each other. But again, we need to be careful, because so often we, we just read our own thoughts into this. 
If we've been heavily influenced by highly authoritarian, male-dominated environments, then we will read into this American gender norms that we've seen over the past century. Or if we are heavily influenced by movements of sexual freedom and critical theory, then we will just decide that Paul's teaching is archaic and doesn't apply to us. But if we take the time to see what Paul is actually doing in the passage, we will see that he's actually rejecting the binary choice between domineering male authority on the one hand and covenant-denying sexual freedom on the other. As I read about the culture of Ephesus in the first century this week, the same binary choice was present 2,000 years ago in this cosmopolitan city of Asia Minor, the same ones that we face today. Among Greek and Roman teaching, men had complete dominance in their home. This is one of the things Paul's doing here throughout this household code. He's confronting this. Their wives, their children, their servants were, were considered property to them, and they could do what they wanted. Now, we may not use that same language today, but some of the ways that gender roles get expressed is dangerously close to men seeing their family and their home as a domain of ownership. And in response to this male dominance in the first century, especially among the upper class around Rome, there was a rise in what became known as the New Roman Woman. And she sought freedom from these old oppressive systems. And there was um, a way in which these women became very liberal with their sexuality, sleeping with men outside their marriage, wearing sexual and provocative clothing. We actually have a copy of, of a letter from the Stoic philosopher Seneca as he wrote to his own mother thanking her for not taking up this trend. This sort of new sexual freedom was even more common in a city like Ephesus because there were several goddess cults there in the city which led to many distortions of God's design for humanity and for sexuality, including male priests who were forced to castrate themselves in order to serve at those temples. And so picture this. Paul is writing into an environment with several distortions around marriage and sexuality. On the one hand, there is a heavy-handed male dominance, and on the other, there's a denial of the marriage covenant through sexual freedom and extramarital affairs. Many thought that those were the only two choices available to them, either submit to the system or completely rebel. And in many ways, the same, uh, the same binary exists in our culture. We often face the same choice between what some might call an authoritarian view of marriage, which emphasizes gender roles, male dominance, and transactional love. The other option is, in the end, just as transactional. And it emphasizes sexual freedom and self-autonomy. In an attempt to free ourselves from the transactional love of many traditional and authoritarian views of marriage, we have created a new transaction. It centers around our own fulfillment. And we enter relationships asking ourselves this question, will you give me what I want? Will you fulfill my desires for my life? And that does not lead to joy and happiness, but hurt and pain. And Paul is here confronting both extremes, and he offers us a way forward, a way that does not deny God's design for male servant leadership that is self-sacrificing in their love for their wives, nor does it deny the design for a wife to honor and respect her husband's servant leadership so they can fulfill God's call on their marriage together. And whether you are in the role of loving servant leader or respectful servant partner, it is through our mutual self-denial that God's vision for marriage is realized. The third purpose of marriage is that it points to something better. 
Several times in our passage, Paul draws this analogy between marriage and our relationship with God, specifically the relationship between Christ and the church. In verse 32, he writes, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And throughout the passage, Paul makes these parallels more than once, actually. Another example is in verse 25, where he tells husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you go and study this passage throughout the week, you can find several more. He draws these parallels repeatedly. And Paul is making this connection so that we understand that marriage is meant to help us see something beyond our marriage, to see something about Christ. The relationship between Jesus and his church sets a pattern for how our marriages are meant to function. Both marriage and Christ are clarified by one another, and the controlling paradigm is Jesus and his relationship to the church, which means that one of the reasons God gave us marriage is to see Christ more clearly. And Paul is not the first biblical author to draw these sort of parallels between God's relationship with us. In the Old Testament, the most notable example of this is in Hosea, in which Hosea marries an unfaithful woman, but like God does with his people, Hosea woos her back to himself and redeems their marriage. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, they both use the marriage analogy to talk about God's relationship with his people, and they make this parallel between idolatry and adultery. Both of them talk about Israel breaking the covenant and chasing after other gods, and now God redeems the covenant as a husband and rejoices over his bride, it says. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God reminds his people that he has bathed them with water and washed them which is very similar language that Paul uses in our passage in verses 26 and 27 when he says that Jesus is sanctifying the church, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, presenting the church as holy and without blemish. The reason that marriage is such a great picture of God's relationship with his people is because there is no human covenant that we make with one another that is more like God's covenant with us than marriage. There's no human covenant that is meant to be more binding and permanent, no covenant that is more damaging when it's broken. And when we break the covenant of marriage, whether through abandonment, abuse, or adultery, we are doing to our spouse what God's people have done to him throughout history. And over and over again, God has taken significant and sacrificial steps to repair our relationship with him, which is why the marriage covenant is so important. And why God's vision for marriage about self-denial and not self-fulfillment is such an important way to understand the way we function in this. Because if I'm only looking out for myself in my marriage, if I'm looking for my own fulfillment, and I know that you are only looking out for yours, then I will never let my guard down. I will never be my true self. I will never let you truly know me. Because I will always feel the need to perform, always wondering if you're going to be looking for the exit when you learn about the true person that you're married to. Inherent to our relationship is the need to keep you fulfilled then or risk losing you. But that is not a covenant. That is a contract. That is a transactional relationship, and transactional relationships will never transform us. We will inevitably fail to fulfill our spouse because we cannot do it perfectly. Because we have all these quirks and all these oddities that if you get married, you learn those quickly about your spouse. And so the question that we're left asking then, if this is the way we think about marriage, if it's primarily about self-fulfillment, the lingering question we find ourselves asking is, 
when you see the real me, are you going to stay? Or are you going to look for the exit? In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Timothy Keller wrote, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. What he's saying there is if we're pretending, if if it's all pretense and you don't really know me, you can't truly love me. It might feel good. It might be a comfort, but it's superficial. The opposite, though, is terrifying. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, he says. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And this is why Jesus transforms our vision of marriage. Because no one in the world will know us as much as he knows us. No one in the world will be sinned against more than him. And yet no one in the world is more committed to sacrificial and transparent love than Jesus. He knows everything about us. He knows our sins and our fears and our failures. And when he saw the worst of humanity, he didn't run, he stayed. When the people he came to save rejected him, accused him, and killed him, he loved them even to the grave. At this point, it is worth clarifying one thing. Because here's what this does not mean. This does not mean that you should stay in an abusive marriage. You don't have to be Jesus in that situation. When your spouse violates the covenant of marriage through abuse, abandonment, and adultery, you don't need to be the savior and stay at the sacrifice of your own safety. For many of us, that's not our situation, though. We are not in a marriage with abuse, and we are meant to deny ourselves and love our spouse through self-denial. It means that through our covenant to one another, we make a commitment to stay, even when we learn the ugly in one another. Jesus did not come to save us because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. I began by saying there are two ways to pursue love in romantic relationships. One of them is about me and my fulfillment. The other is about you and your fulfillment. The first is selfish. The second is scary. But it is only when we take the risk to love our spouse despite our fears that we can experience the joy and fulfillment that God has designed for marriage. Two people committed to self-denial is the only way two people can actually find self-fulfillment in their marriage. In his Songs of Experience, William Blake wrote a poem about these two ways to love in romantic relationships. The first is a picture of self-denial, the second of self-fulfillment, and he says this, Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself have any care, but for another gives its ease and builds a heaven in hell's despair. The second type of love, he says, love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, joy in another's loss of ease, and builds a hell in heaven's despite. The selfish pursuit of our own fulfillment will lead to hell in despair, even though God meant marriage for delight. And when marriage is about God's glory and the good of our spouse, then we will find the joy of God's kingdom, in the midst of our marriage. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.